she knows that he knows that she knows that they know that we know that they know. The trouble with assistants, they start bossing me around, they steal your medications, and then they disappear. I mean, literally everybody I've worked with at the space. Tanya, I feel your pain. Yeah, I mean, if there's one thing The White Lotus has taught me as a series, it's that if I'm going to go on holiday anywhere where I don't speak the language, I just need to know the words, help, this man is trying to kill me. (laughs) (laughs) It would be quite weird if she wasn't in season three, but then maybe she just feels like she just wanted a little cheeky bit of voiceover work. This podcast was recorded remotely and contains adult themes and language. Hello and welcome to TV DNA. We are going to be talking about the White Lotus, but before we get to that, I have been joined by two very good friends, the much-missed Neil Shepek. Hey all, Merry Christmas. Lovely to have you back, Neil. And also welcome to Izzy Dixon. Hello, happy Christmas. Lovely to have you back, Izzy, after our Bad Sisters episode. This is our penultimate episode of the year. So we're going to be doing a 2022 review and looking forward to what's coming in 2023. And you're going to join us for that as well, Izzy, which I'm delighted about. Yeah. This episode, we're going to be talking about what we've been watching and the stuff that's coming up between now and Christmas, because we're not going to record until after Christmas. Let's kick off. Izzy, do you want to go first with, with what you've been watching? Yeah. So my current things that I'm watching are The English which is brilliant. I'm three episodes into that out of the six, um, which I am loving. Really, really getting into it. Absolutely fantastically written, beautiful scenery. Just a really incredible piece of TV. So thoroughly enjoying that. Would really recommend. And has space alumni Benjamin Victor in, which you mentioned in the Bad Sisters episode. And then the other series I'm watching, which also has a space alumni in, is The Flat Share, which is on Paramount Plus, which has Jessica Brown Finlay and I forget the guy who's in it. The evil ex-boyfriend of Jessica Brown Finlay's character is Bart Edwards, who is in Burn God Little, which I produced back in 2015. So tuned in at first to, to kind of see Bart do his evil thing, but it's very, very entertaining. So I'm, again, three episodes into the six of that. So really enjoying we haven't mentioned the flat share before as a show on the podcast tell us what that's about so the flat share is about a woman who's recently broken up with her partner and she moves into a one-bedroom flat in london the catch is that she has the flat from 8 p.m to 8 a.m and from 8 a.m to 8 p.m it's lived in by another another housemate who i think actually rents the flat and is sort of maybe illegally renting it to her who essentially works night shifts So they actually share a bed, but they've never met. And it's based on a novel, I think, by Beth O'Leary, which I haven't read, but it's a really great concept and a really good sort of take on the London rental market and how depressing it all is. I'm aware of this. I haven't watched it yet, but it looks really interesting. I'm going to watch it as soon as I can. Yeah, I definitely recommend it. And um, so I watched it with my friend Kat this weekend, um, who directed Werner God Little, mainly tuned in because Bart was in Werner God Little, but he is an equally evil character in this. He's sort of really shitty ex-boyfriend of the main character, who is a total wrong-in. It's really fun. It's quite an easy watch, but I think has a really interesting premise, which makes it very entertaining. Cool. And the English. Neil, have you watched any of the English? Yes, I have. I've watched the first, I think, three episodes I'm really enjoying the English. I've just finished, as of uh, a couple of nights ago, Wednesday, on Netflix. I absolutely love that show. 
have you both watched it? No, I haven't. I am saving it. I, I have finished it. Yeah, me and Phoebe finished it this week. Great storytelling, great drama. I absolutely loved it. And they're clearly lining up for a second series. Did you guess who it was? But let's let's not give away who, who it is. You know, you must have had theories leading up to the final episode, Neil. Did you guess who it was? No, I didn't. I like to think that <laughs> um, I, I can predict these things, but um, no, I didn't predict he was going to eventually be the rage. Yeah, it ended up, you, you thought you were only looking for one person, it ended up being you're looking for two, right? And, mm. and everyone is suspicious throughout mm. the whole thing, almost comically so, I think. <laughs> I thought it was darkly delicious, like some of the lines she has. Such a great character. Um, and an amazing actress as well. Yeah, yeah. General Taker as Wednesday Adams. I really want to see her in something as like Aubrey Plaza's younger sister. <laughs> I think they look alike, but also their whole like demeanour is so similar, which is great. But I'm really excited for Wednesday. I've kind of queued it up and it's uh, a definitely a Christmas watch. Yeah, I think it will be a good a good Christmas binge watch, definitely Wednesday. Really, really good stuff. Yeah, you won't regret it. Um, and I know a lot of the kids at my school that I work at have been watching it. And it's awesome. It really is fantastic. It's funny, funny story. And I may have told this before on the podcast. I don't know. But when I got married, the priest said how delighted he was to welcome the Adams family. The- <laughs> <laughs> I love that. There you go. Now, with the English, I just want to ask whether Rafe Spall has turned up by episode three. I've got a feeling he turns up in episode four of the English. He hasn't yet, but I know he's coming. And I think he's he's kind of a big baddie, isn't he? Almost on the scale of Clash Bang in Bad Sisters. That's the kind of evilness, the evilness scale that you're looking at. He's superb in, in the English. Really, really good. But I I fell in love with Chaske Spencer. I just thought his his character was just incredible in the English really really yeah. the how to do so much with so little I think is the key for that right? yeah he is fantastic and I love I mean Emily Blunt is always amazing and always one of my favorite actresses but the dynamic between them is absolutely brilliant cool we talked about this a while back but I finished the crown Neil finally okay. and I um I think the best episode was the divorce episode yeah. and, and this was actually quite difficult to watch for me in a, in a lot of different ways but I thought it was really really brilliantly done superbly done it's funny how you know I haven't thought about divorce in a, in a long long time my, my parents were divorced and my new family that came together had a different sort of divorce that they were going through but um, it's funny how that show brought back all these different weird historical feelings for for me I just think the crown is it's incredibly well made I didn't think this this one was as strong as the last season overall, but just the brilliant motifs that run throughout each episode. The cast do a really, really good job, and it is very, very well cast. I just can't see it winning as many gongs as the last season did. I mean, the last season did so well, didn't it? It was, you know, absolutely everywhere. Yeah. Um, how many series are they doing? Is it six? They plan to do yeah. six. Yeah. So an ultimate one. It would make sense for it to finish with the Queen's death. However sad that might be, that would definitely give a closure to the story. I agree with Adam. The I mean, well, this series has focused very much on Charles and Diana's divorce. 
And I do think that that's a good thing to address that. We've also had the um, Harry um, documentary that's come out recently. I've watched the first episode of that. And there's a lot of truth seemingly coming out from that. I've not watched that yet. I'm I'm sort of in two minds about it. I'm not sure. I think it'd be really interesting to get their take. But I did. I also think if they're going to wrap up the crown, it would make sense to do right up until the end of the Queen's life because it is about that entire yes. But I think there, there has been some talk, hasn't there, about the fact they don't want Will and Kate and Harry and Meghan in particular really don't want it to get into the kind of Meghan Markle part of the, the story. They really want to cut it off before that starts becoming a thing. So I don't know. I guess it depends what will happen. And I'm sure Harry and Meghan's Netflix deal might feed into that a little bit. Well, I do think it is going to become a, a thing. And actually, I'm supportive of it become, becoming a thing. They've gone through a, he- a hell of a lot, and I think they deserve to have their story told. Yeah, I, again, I haven't seen the Harry and Meghan show. I'm not sure whether I will, but I'm aware it's a big TV moment at the, at the moment. But yeah, I, and I think the crown is going to be, it's going to, a, a large part of the final season, obviously, is going to be dealing with Diana's death, right? And, and yeah. the impact of all of that. It's really, really good TV. It's well-made stuff. And I only watched the last two seasons, so I've got three seasons to go back on at some point and catch up with, which I'm definitely going to do. Maybe uh, I'll do that. I wasn't sure how, like, episodic it is in that respect. Like, do you have to kind of watch the start? Can you Can you just start from... Yeah, you can. Um, you, you absolutely can. It's very individually episodic. You can watch episodes without being aware of what else has gone on beforehand. Yeah, and I think it's it's the different cast every two seasons, right, Neil? Yeah. Yeah. So the other thing I watched recently, which was something that I've had to be catching up on, it was it's been on my list for a while, and I finally got to it. So I don't know whether either of you seen the capture. No, but um, someone I know is watching this and it's been recommending it. Well, I watched both seasons because it's got two seasons now, back to back, and I can absolutely see why everyone's raved about it. I think the second season definitely takes it up a gear. So if you watch the first season and enjoy it, you'll really enjoy the second season. In a way, that first season sets up what's possible for season two. There's a little bit of stretching credulity at times, but it raises really intriguing questions and all of the characters in it are complicated and have motives that you sometimes agree with, sometimes disagree with. Yeah. Um, so I definitely recommend, I really enjoyed watching that show. It um, feels like definitely one of the series that people have been talking about a lot this year. So I've got a little note of things I do need to catch up on and that is on there. Damo had an issue with Holiday Granger's poutiness, but Chloe Chloe didn't have an issue with that at all. So, and, and I can confirm it's not a problem. I really like Holiday Granger. I think she's great. Yeah, yeah, I thought she was really good, really good in this. The other show I've finished is 1899. Neither of you watched, right? I haven't watched it yet, but me and my housemate are planning to start it. But I love anything kind of weird and trippy and slightly kind of horror sci-fi. So, yeah, that is very high on my list of things to watch. Is it the same people who made Dark? Yeah. Did you watch Dark? I didn't watch Dark, but it's one of those things that, again, people are like, if you're going to watch a Netflix TV series, Dark is in the top ones ever and ones you should watch. I I haven't seen Dark yet. It's something I want to go back to. And I will probably save talking about 1899 until Damien's on because I know he's watched it too. I'm, I'm a little bit conflicted about it. I think it's good and I'd recommend watching it. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad I watched it. 
Uh, the other thing I have watched recently, which I know we kind of briefly talked about in Bad Sisters Adam was on both of our lists, was the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. I don't know if you've got around to watching that yet, but that is an incredibly enjoyable 50 minutes of TV, self-contained little thing. Yeah, it was great. Just great to have time with those characters again. Just yeah. huge amounts of fun and, and, and a lovely Christmassy thing. It's quite, it's very light. It's very light, but do you know, I quite appreciated that because I was a bit worried they were going to try and maybe cram too much storyline into it. And actually having something that was just about them kidnapping Kevin Bacon was fantastic. What a sweet spot. Yeah. He was such a good sport as well. I thought he really, he did such a great job. And it paid tribute to the Star Wars holiday special that inspired it, which is a random thing that not very many people have seen. I think you can find it on YouTube. But the animation element of it was was definitely a tribute to the Star Wars holiday special. Oh, I didn't know that. And I love that because I, I do feel like Guardians of the Galaxy is maybe this generation of Star Wars in a way. Not that my nieces and nephews who are, you know, six to nine years old don't watch Star Wars. But I just think Guardians of the Galaxy has got that really original fun thing that Star Wars was when it first came out. But we've got the amazing Damien Cooper and has joined us. Hello. I haven't watched... I've watched Guardians of the Galaxy 1 years ago in the cinema. I have no other knowledge of Guardians of the Galaxy and very little knowledge of Star Wars. But a little bit more now that you've been watching Andor, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm no further along because of this thing called the World Cup. But, uh, yeah, I am enjoying Andor, what I've seen so far. We're definitely going to be talking more Star Wars when we do our next episode. Looking forward to what's coming up next year because there's lots to talk about there. Welcome, Damo. Have you been? What have you been watching? Oh, well, I've just stopped something to come and record. As of the day of recording, is the last is as we're going to talk about the finale of the White Lotus, or as they say in Italy, the White Lotus, and I hadn't had enough Italian so I've just watched the opening 35 minutes of the new Netflix and Jim Henson co-creation of and Guillermo de Tormo's Pinocchio. And how was the first 30 minutes? Molto bene. <laughs> Got no more than that sorry it's very good. <laughs> Do you know I, I would quite like to see it but I'm saving it for watching with my nieces and nephews over Christmas. Glad to hear it's good. It's Guillermo del Toro, right? So is this a kid's watch? Can I watch this with the kids? Uh, Yeah, I mean, from what I've seen so far, I'd say it's quite self-aware. It is a little bit dark, obviously, because it's Guillermo del Toro, so it's a bit fantastical and twisted and dark. But I think all in a way in which it won't scare little kids. Also, I think little kids quite like that. I definitely was into weird, slightly dark, creepy things when I was nine or ten so i'm sure my nieces and nephews will be fine she says before she traumatizes them which i'll fill you all in on the year phoebe could handle it otis is a sensitive soul so you know i sometimes worry about him i I don't know whether i ever told the story about the ghosts episode that he watched with me on the podcast so he sometimes would just you know climb into bed and whilst i was watching ghosts and i thought this is a pretty safe thing for him to watch with me it's a comedy and and then there's an episode where one of the character has a dream about eating dirt and it's just it's just the darkest scene in ghosts and it gave him nightmares for the next two days so oh bless him 
So I started a new show this week. I watched the first I watched the first two episodes of A Spy Amongst Friends, which is on the new ITVX app, ITV streaming service. This is the one with Damien Lewis and Guy Pearce in as two former friendly spies. But it turns out that Guy Pearce's character, Kim Philby, has been a Russian spy all along. It's a typical sort of John le Carre spy style thing. It's not written by John le Carre, but it's in that hallmark it's quite slow but beautifully paced and they are both really really good but anna maxwell martin i think is superb in this really really fucking good anna maxwell martin is always superb i also think she looks like grace chapman just putting it out there celebrity doppelganger (laughs) (laughs) i feel like you have to introduce her in this episode when she comes online as anna maxwell martin now adam okay that's done (laughs) were you going to say something about spy amongst friends i was going to make an absolutely terrible terrible joke and ask if at any point it was like austin powers which is obviously the best uh, spy franchise there's very little austin powers like stuff in the show so far but i am only two episodes in so there's still time episode three that's when it will really ramp up yeah (laughs) talking about ghosts earlier I started watching the US version of The Ghosts, of The Ghosts, of Ghosts, on the BBC, the iPlayer. I'll be honest, I wasn't too keen on it. Reluca watched it pretty much in one sitting, all 17 episodes. I, I kind of tapped out halfway through episode two. I'm always really conflicted with how I feel about American remakes of shows. And Ghosts feels like such a British show, I don't know how you do it, but... Having said that, that's how I originally felt about The American Office, and I love it now. It's one of my all-time favourite comfort watches. And I would say I actually prefer it to the British one, which is not, I know is not a cool thing to say. but So sometimes it works, but I'm I'm unsure about this one, whether it will. It has had a lot of praise, the American version of The Office, as has Slow Horses, which I'm thoroughly enjoying the second season of. And I know, I don't know whether any of the rest of you are watching it. It's so, so good. Again, back to spies. But this is Gary Oldman's Slough House Slow Horses, who are spies who've been put on the rubbish dump. This second season gets better and better with each episode. Really, really good stuff. It's a big recommendation from me. I want to very quickly talk about Echo 3, which I have been watching for a little while, which is on Apple TV Plus as well. It's basically about a scientist who's in Colombia doing research and gets captured and and held hostage. And her brother and her fiancé, or husband, can't remember which, who are both uh, military, trying to rescue her. Great action scenes, a little bit of dodgy dialogue, but the recent episode, episode five, has been the best yet. Really tense, gripping stuff as she tries to make her escape from where she is. But Apple yeah. TV's been knocking out of the park this year, hasn't it? Some great stuff. It really has. I, I mean, I watch pretty much everything on Apple TV now. Neil thinks I'm sponsored by them. Well, I, I hate to add a further bit of sponsorship to Apple TV. I believe I saw uh, something on the Instagram, um, but it might have been on another of the social networks. There is currently, with the release of Will Smith's new film on apple there is a code for people who haven't had an apple subscription before to get two free months i'm assuming if you already have it all you need to do is sign up with a different email address i'll find that code 
and we'll put it in the show notes for those who fancy two free months of Apple TV. I mean, two free months, you could squeeze in Ted Lasso, Severance, Coda. Um, Bad Sisters, absolutely. Pachinko and Slow Horses, I reckon, in that two-month period. Easily. Really, really good stuff. Damo, did you get any further on 1899? Uh, nicht am Moment. No, I haven't yet, because as I said, this uh, this thing called the World Cup has really taken over. Fortunately, at this day uh, of recording is a rest day between games, so I can uh, I can help record. But talking about the World Cup, as I have twice now... I watched more of the fantastic Netflix docu-series FIFA Uncovered about the origins and pure corruption from birth of the FIFA organisation. So I recommend it. It's a good documentary, even if you couldn't give a shit about football. It's a very well-made documentary about how money and power corrupts. I might give that a go, you know, because I always I'm not really a sports person. I don't really watch a lot of sports. But I one of my all time favorite things I've watched on Netflix was The Last Dance, which is the documentary about Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. And I have realized I was being too snobby about sports documentaries. And actually often they're great. I would say as well, Izzy, that there has been a marked increase in quality in sports documentaries. I'd say within the last three or four years. They are really solid documentaries. I put them alongside most other genres of documentary. So, yeah, definitely give it a go. So my cousin was one of the producers on, I don't know if anyone saw on Now TV, and it was a film rather than a um, TV series, but there was a really good documentary on Frankie Dottori, you know, the jockey. My cousin was the producer on that. So we watched that as a little family screening last Christmas, and that was also great. I'm not just saying this because I'm biased or sponsored. It's genuinely very good. We'll put that name of the documentary in the show notes. Totally, let's do it. I mean, speaking of the football demo, how are you feeling after last Saturday? Is you had enough time to um, process oh, that? I mean, I'm still heartbroken in a way. So, I mean, obviously, Izzy, I know you listen to every episode religiously. Of course. Last episode, Adam and I had a very brief chat about the football. and Neither of us were particularly sure that we'd get past France, and we didn't. And uh, I think we I think we played well. It's just unfortunate. Small margins, right, at that level of the game, as the pundits say in a cliched manner. But what can we do? Roll on the Euros. Everyone's a Morocco fan now, right? Of course. I was I was Morocco from the start. I haven't watched any of the World Cup, full disclosure. <laughs> <laughs> I have, however, been uh, introducing a friend of mine to Ted Lasso, so I feel like I've got my football fix through that. But let's talk about what's coming up between now and Christmas. So the first of those to come up is National Treasure, Edge of History. Jess, a brilliant and resourceful dreamer, searches for answers about her family. She embarks on the adventure of a lifetime to uncover the truth about the past and save a lost Pan-American treasure. This is inspired by, based on the National Treasure, couple of films that Nicolas Cage made, but doesn't feature Nicolas Cage. Instead, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Harvey Keitel, Justin Bartha and Lyndon Smith are the stars. Anyone excited about this? Anyone watched the National Treasure films? I would be more excited if Nicolas Cage was in it. But um, the trailer's definitely quite something, isn't it? They've thrown a lot at that. I watched uh, the first National Treasure film in the cinema 
Jeez, I don't even know when that was, 2006 maybe. I did as well, and I honestly could not tell you a lot of the plot line. Let's deem the Constitution, right? Something about the Constitution and Nicolas Cage is involved. That's all I can give you. Clearly made a real mark on me, but I'm sure at the time I was very entertained. Well, that's coming on Disney Plus on the 14th of December, which I think is Thursday. Does that does that compute? Wednesday. Wednesday, thank you. Uh, I don't know what day it is at all. Coming on the 18th of December, which is obviously a Friday? No, Sunday. Eight, 18th, yes, yeah, the World Cup final. Yes, yeah, sorry. So there's two shows coming on the Sunday, the 18th of December, same day as the World Cup final. The first is Litvinenko, uh, which is coming to ITVX. This is the story of the determined Scotland Yard officers who worked to prove who was responsible for the death of Alexander Litvinenko in one of the most complex and dangerous investigations in the history of the Metropolitan Police. It stars David Tennant and line of duties Mark Bonner. My main question about this is, I don't know why David Tennant is playing this character and putting on a bad Russian accent. After McMafia, people know that there are loads of great Russian actors in the UK. Why are we giving that to a Scottish actor doing a bad Russian accent? I would agree, but I will watch anything that David Tennant is in. So it's a yes from me, but I've heard bad things about the accent. That is the main headlines of the reviews at the moment. I used to know someone who was Russian. I told him to slow down. Also on the 18th of December, the third and final season of His Dark Materials. It's oh been my nearly, God, I'm so excited. It's very exciting. To be fair, I haven't watched the second season, so I'm going to catch up on that before the 18th of December. But it's been nearly two years I've had to watch that season two. And this is based on the Amber Spyglass, uh, obviously the third book in the trilogy. A really, really brilliant book. But the new season will bring the story of Lyra and Will to a climax as the duo aid Lord Azrael in an epic battle against antagonist The Authority. The trailer for this is also great. I'm so excited about this. I've genuinely loved both series and TV show. And I'm a massive, massive fan of the books, which I think are really hard to adapt well. And they've done it brilliantly. Bring back Ruth Wilson as Mrs. Coulter. One of the best performances, I think. It's been uh, so long since I read the books. And I heard an interview with Amir Wilson, who plays Will. And he said that he wasn't born when the books came out. So... <laughs> That just tells you how long ago it was that they were released and made me feel really quite old. Um, Now, did any of you watch I Hate Susie? I did watch the first season and really enjoyed it, but I definitely feel like I'd need to go and refresh it before watching season two. Well, I Hate Susie 2 is coming out on the 20th of December on Sky Atlantic and Now TV. Billy Piper's toxic celeb is back, this time with a new agent, a new PR and a new job. Dancing for likes on Dance Crazy a reality TV competition that has the Saturday night audience hooked. Having lost pretty much everything she cares about, she's returning to win her first love, the public. So is this something we should be watching, Izzy? I think we should probably watch this. I'm a big fan of um, Lucy Preble, who's the main writer, who is great. First series I remember really enjoying, so I think I'm going to invest some time watching it. A couple of other bits I wanted to quickly touch on. So Jack Ryan, season three. I haven't watched either of the first two seasons. That's coming to Prime Video on the 21st of December. I watched the first series. It was okay. Uh, and then I got, I think, 
I almost finished the first episode of the second series and was like, now this is this is ridiculous. I, I can't even I can't watch this shit. And then uh, the, the film Glass Onion is coming out to onto Netflix on the 23rd of December. Um, so this will be a good Christmas watch. Uh, this is obviously the follow up to Knives Out. This in- I am incredibly excited about. Should be good. And then Christmas Day, we get The Witcher Blood Origin. Very excited about this. I'm a huge fan of The Witcher. Set more than a thousand years before the world of The Witcher, seven outcasts in the elf world unite in a quest against an unstoppable power. Michelle Yeoh is the main star, but also Nathaniel Curtis from It's a Sin, Mini Driver, Lenny Henry, who seems to love these fantasy shows now, and Dylan Moran. Dylan Moran. What a casting choice. Thrilled about that. I have a confession to make in that I haven't finished the first series of The Witcher yet. I think I got to like maybe the penultimate episode and stopped watching, but I did enjoy it. It's kind of fun as fantasy series go. Also has Bart Edwards in. Oh, really? Who's he in that? He's the, you know, like the hedgehog man. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah. I love the part. It's like hedgehog man. No idea of the character's name. But I did very much enjoy there's like a heavy metal version of the theme song that i highly recommend so i got very into you for a bit will you be watching it demo christmas day uh, probably not on christmas day no so i've played the witcher game and i've been meaning to read the books i wasn't particularly enamored by the series but i am a big fan of is it michelle yo i think it's an absolutely phenomenal actor uh so given that it doesn't involve charisma vacuum henry carvel I probably will enjoy it more. So I'll give it a try, but probably not on the big day itself. <laughs> he's leaving though, isn't he, Henry Cavill? He's not doing season three or is season three the last one or something? He's doing season three and then being replaced after that by one of the Hemsworths. Yeah, Liam Hemsworth. So my friend Tash is incredibly gussed about this. Um, she's a huge, huge fan of The Witcher and she, in fact, walked down the aisle to the the music from the Witcher 3 video game and they signed the register to the succession theme tune, which is Chef's Kiss. Fantastic music choices all round. Yeah, that's amazing stuff. The final show then coming out before we will record again is Without Sin, coming to ITVX on the 28th of December. This is a four-part psychological thriller exploring the relationship which develops between a grieving mother and the man she believes murdered her daughter. This sounds heavy. But Vicky McClure, who we are all big fans of, will play the leading role of Stella Tomlinson. And Johnny Harris plays Charles Stone. I'm not a big fan of Vicky McClure's wig in this. <laughs> if you've seen the trailers, it's such a terrible wig. But she owes us one, right? She owes us one for Trigger Point. Yeah. I, mean, I didn't what... watch Trigger Point. I'm a huge Vicky McClure fan, but I missed it. I just uh, don't watch it. Yeah. Shaking heads. Please don't. Please don't watch Trigger Point. It's truly, apart from two or three decent, tense action scenes involving bombs, some pretty dicey dialogue. So which tense? I don't remember any tense in this show. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, that's it for what's coming up soon. A little bit of news Mm -hmm. for Mike Flanagan fans which is pretty much me and Reluca, I think. But there's no more Midnight Club. That show on Netflix has been cancelled because he's announced he's moving to Prime Video. His end of his Netflix deal has come and he's switching allegiance. But he has announced an adaptation of Stephen King's Dark Tower, which is all very, very exciting. That's very cool. And I think the final project he's working on for Netflix is The Fall of the House of Usher. Very, Uh, very excited about this. 
big yeah. Edward Cullen fan. I just want to double check. Sorry, the House of Usher is that the nineties and uh, early noughties R and B superstar? Yeah. Good. I'm glad the answer was yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and also, we had the Golden Globe nominations came out today. I think recently, anyway. I think generally they've got it reasonably right. Uh, definitely, Better Call Saul was up there in the uh, one of the best TV series. And Diego Luna from Andor has been nominated as Best Actor in a Drama Series. They do a weird thing where they split up drama series, comedy series and limited series, but then they they combine the actors for some reason in some of those, which I think is a little bit odd. Oh, um, Jeremy Allen White's got nominated for The Bear. Yeah, very, very pleased about that. Um, but yeah, Better Call Saul, The Crown, House of Dragon, House of the Dragon, Ozark, and Severance were the five nominees for Best Drama Series. Uh, and then Musical Comedy Series, Abbott Elementary, The Bear, Hacks, Only Murders in the Building, and Wednesday. I've seen all of those, and I think they are all really, really good. But I do genuinely hope The Bear wins it. That, I, that I think, is maybe my show of 2022. I'm really dithering between that and Bad that all Bad Sisters taking the top spot, but... God, well, the finale is going to stay with me for a long time. Their best limited series, anthology series, or television motion picture are Blackbird, which Damien and I enjoyed on Apple TV, Dharma, which I haven't seen and I've heard mixed things about, The Dropout, Pam and Tommy, and The White Lotus, which I, I guess gets in there as an anthology series. Yeah, but, I guess it's a self-contained story. It's a little bit cheeky, I think. I did actually watch the first episode of Dharma, and I really couldn't handle it I just found it too intense I'm normally I'm normally quite a big fan of true crime but I think a lot of the criticism of it is that it really towed the line of being almost a bit too exploitative and I definitely found that with the first episode great performances I think Evan Peters almost definitely will win something for it he's got nominated in a lot of categories for things but yeah not for me despite being totally the target audience yeah I was a bit dubious because I heard similar things I've seen that nominated for Best Supporting Actress in a Limited Series or TV Movie is both Jennifer Coolidge and Aubrey Plaza for The White Lotus. Yeah, rightly so. Both fantastic. I mean, we don't cover the Golden Globes in as much detail as we do the Emmys, but I think they're always an interesting precursor of, of that stuff. The Old Man's a show that I've never... I haven't watched yet and I've heard lots of good things about. So I'm going to try and squeeze that in before the end of the year. So Jeff Bridges is down for best actor in a TV drama and he's in The Old Man. But so is Kevin Costner, who's in a show called Yellowstone, which is not to be confused with Yellow Snow. (laughs) But I think the most nominations of all the TV series are for Abbott Elementary. And I'm delighted about that. It's a really, really brilliant show. I've raved about it when we were doing the Emmys specials. And also uh, a quick shout out for Dom Hall Gleeson, who's got a nod for Best Supporting Actor for The Patient, which is another show that I'm currently watching. I've got about three or four more episodes of that to go, but enjoying The Patient. Although I just can't see how he's going to beat Paul Walter Hauser's performance in Blackbird. Oh, it's such a good performance. So I am going to share with you now, I don't know if you've heard these on previous podcast episodes, Izzy, but Phoebe and... Otis and I have been watching the Santa Clauses on Disney Plus. And after each episode, we do a little review. So here's our review of the latest episode of the Santa Clauses. 
So here we are again talking about the Santa Clauses, this time episode five. Welcome, welcome to the Yule, not 500. Welcome to the Yuleverse. What did you think of this one, Otis? It was good because um, the other Santa said, but um, Santa's kids, that was the retire one, that was the other retire one. So, I mean the other retire one, so the, not that one. So their kids had powers. And so I tell you their powers. Yeah. So the girl was that she had a pet talk and then that animal could do what she said because she might know what the pet talk was. So then, and then she, and then she did it. So Santa's daughter can speak to animals. The girl. Right. Okay. And the boy has the power to know what Santa is gonna get for her present. Ah. <laughs> To know what people want for their presents. Yes, the boy. And he could also see the portal, couldn't he? Yeah. Phoebe, what did you think about all the different Father Christmases? Um, I thought that was a really uh, cool idea. I watched the uh, the first movie the other day, and I think it's really cool how they uh, use that movie to make these like you know series. Yeah. So there's and there's of, 19 Santas, I think. There's lots of references to the movie, right? Yeah. And I like how um, all like Bernard, how they've like what they would look like when they you know grew up. Yeah. And um, what's happening to the elves? Um, they're dis- disappearing, and now it's only the boy that has the the eye patch and the, the plastic hat or hat, and then he told um all the um. Else to wear, um, but they all laughed at him. But he's the only one left. It was a tin foil hat, wasn't it? He was wearing a tin foil okay. hat, and he thinks that's protected him. Where do you think the other elves have gone? Do you think they've disappeared for good? No, no. Remember that Santa's clothing disappeared in the witch's house. Oh. Maybe the elves have disappeared in the witch's house. Maybe. Although, although, um, doesn't the head elf go? into the witch's house and, and then she found she went there and found the coat but i can't remember if that was before or after after was disappearing oh, right. oh okay. no it can't be that and what happened to uh santa at the end the, the santa's not retired let's leave it there then so another another review of the santa claus is still in 500 yep yeah five yep. stars 500 yep. stars yeah. yeah. Five million. Okay, Santa Claus. Five billion. The Santa Claus is reviewed by the Hemmings. <laughs> Bye. Bye, brother. And sister. Oh, I want an audio book just narrated by Otis. I mean, the, the plot is getting a little bit more complicated, and I don't know if you're able to follow it from those reviews, but safe to say we're still enjoying the Santa Clauses. So we have now finally been joined by the new diva of Palermo, the Anna Maxwell Martin of TV DNA. It's Grace Chapman. Oh, it's a wonderful thing to make a new friend so late in life. <laughs> it is indeed. And we and this marks the point in the episode where we are finally going to be talking about The White Lotus, Episode 7, BYG. And I wanted to just ask whether anyone knew what the title meant. No idea. So I looked it up and the only thing that Google could provide me was an Urban Dictionary uh, acronym, Because You're Gay. <laughs> Tutti sono gay. Tutti sono. <laughs> so before we get into the episode then, let's get some 
sort of initial reactions how did people feel about the final episode of the white lotus season two i'm very conflicted i really enjoyed it but it left me also feeling quite sad but isn't that kind of the point of the white lotus that you end each season being like these extremely wealthy people have learned absolutely nothing and they're going to go on and continue to be pretty awful to everyone else I, I mean, I, I loved it. I, I was, uh, if any of the listeners have heard the previous two episodes, I was getting a little bit impatient for something to happen. And lo, it happened. And I was very happy. I mean, all of my notes, the main thing is the amount of exclamation marks that I have used throughout. I've gone all caps, Grace, for my, uh, <laughs> yeah, certain moments in my notes. How about you, Demo? Uh, yeah, a bit of a mixed bag, obviously. I'm the resident Debbie Downer. I don't know. It came to the end and parts of the storyline, I was a bit like, oh, I feel like we could have explored some of them a little bit more. I think we could have really got a bit more out of the Italians. I think we kind of forgot about them in the end, in that final episode, bar a brief bit here or there. But some really good stuff, some really good performances. And I mean, that this, the final scene on the boat was just something else. I think we, in a way we were, almost set up for a bloodbath right we were kind of expecting that there were going to be multiple deaths of guests which there were to be fair but so I don't think I was disappointed by it in any way I I really really enjoyed the episode and I and I thoroughly enjoyed the series as a whole but yeah I think we they they kind of teased us that there were going to be multiple deaths in this season and perhaps not the ones we were expecting yeah I mean we were sort of set up to think there would be almost like a death per group right that's sort of how we were kind of predicting things I didn't really think that an entire group plot or plot group would be wiped out but I quite like that surprise element I thought that was quite clever that they they teased us for so long with who's gonna die and then actually it was like one very specific yacht (laughs) yeah I, I wonder if because of that we just say the game is null and void it doesn't matter Hmm, beg to differ. Is that a French saying? <laughs> we'll come on to our sweepstakes scores. We, see, we we all predicted who we thought was going to die and, and, and picked a killer each. Um, and only one of us scored points and it wasn't Demo. So <laughs> who do we want to start with? We, we go group by group, Izzy. So as our guest, are there a particular group that you would like us to start this episode with? Do you know, I really enjoyed the subplot kind of all the way through, but particularly this final episode, I thought they came up trumps and it was a really great sort of satisfying twist ending of Lucia and Mia. So yeah, the Italian duo. Yeah, and they didn't they didn't feature heavily in this, but let's throw let's throw Valentino because I think a lot of Mia's stuff was was with Valentina, right? So mm-hmm. should we start with with her storyline? Valentina's woken by housekeeping coming in to clean the rooms. <laughs> and she's overslept and can't find her knickers. I mean, this is Valentina's worst nightmare. Like, this is always what we said would be her nightmare. Her professionalism is called into question. And I loved the the bra and no pants detail. It was so brilliant. So brilliant. I also love the fact the first thing she does is she yells at housekeeping. It's like, you never come in a room without knocking. You should know that. It's like, even in that situation, she's just yelling at the staff. Speaking of good, Mia tells her she was good. Um... So that's good. I think I think it's nice that after the Amand ending of season one, we get a hotel manager actually has a relatively happy ending, which is nice. 
I've got a lot of time for all of Valentina's clapbacks. Didn't realise this, but the Peppa Pig line in episode one, where Jennifer Coolidge is like, look who I look like. And she's like, Peppa Pig was improvised by the actress, which is great. But I really enjoyed in this one when she fires Salvatore and is like, look, you're flirting with someone who's young enough to be your daughter. It's really gross. Just go back to the beach. I loved Salvatore's reaction to that. It's like, one day I'm on the beach, the next day I'm here. Where am I going to be next time? And all the gesticulation, kind of classic Italian gesticulation as well. Oh, I'm that voice, that voice. Well, the next time he's, he's going to be in the kitchen washing dishes. He's chatting to Isabella about Arancini, another little callback. <laughs> Valentina looks a right mess, but Isabella asks about Rocco and Val agrees. Um, Because we needed him back there, didn't we, to fit in with the opening of the season. I love the the put down of Salvatore. Also really love the fact that when Rocco comes back, she welcomes him back. You know, she's like, Rocco, and he's expecting to be told off. And she just says, welcome back. Yeah, it's nice to see Valentina with a bit of a, she's got a little lust for life now, isn't she? She's kind of dare I say it, unclenched ever so slightly. And, um, and it's just really nice to see. I love sort of Mia's pitch to her about, you know, you should probably be with an actual full lesbian. <laughs> and I think my favourite is like, you can go to some crazy clubs with some hot women who are gay. I just absolutely love that pitch. Yeah, I think because we have that, was it in the first episode where Lucia says to her, you need to lighten up, you need to get laid. And then here she is, she's got laid. And wow, she's as light as a feather. <laughs> and I love the fact that Mia says that she and Lucia are going to take her out to these clubs as well. That's a spin-off series I want to see. Lucia, Mia and Valentina hitting the gay clubs of Sicily. <laughs> yeah, bon- bonus episode, please. Bonus what? Bonus. <laughs> oh, sorry. Someone they're not as happy to see come back is Giuseppe, our pianist, uh, massive pianist. And I just love the first thing that Mia says to him when she sees him is, you're alive. (laughs) But he's told he's fired. uh, The guests prefer Mia. It's a meritocracy. Nothing to do with the fact that, you know, we got down to the business last night. I quite like the shot then of the bar when she was saying this and we saw the, the, the two different people who work in the bar. And I was trying to gauge what their reaction was. Were they just excited that this drama was happening or were they like, yeah, actually... He's absolutely terrible, and Mia is great. I thought they looked concerned. I was all geared up for Giuseppe to come back in some sort of violent way at the end because they knew that he was some sort of psycho. I don't know. I was, you know, expecting there to be more. More with that Giuseppe storyline, I guess, to be some sort of resolution, but we didn't get that. I think the final thing we get with Valentina is uh, her applauding Mia at dinner. Also, the final thing we get is a lovely, and to, to do a Damien here, Vavanculo from Giuseppe, which I loved. Poor Giuseppe, <laughs> he gets spiked with MDMA, ends up in hospital, nearly dies, comes back, and they've just given his job to someone else. But another great clapback from um, Valentina on that. She's just like, yeah, the guest premiere. You're so blunt, I love it. Lucia, I thought, we was, was woefully underserved in this episode, and we didn't really see her until... Cameron slips her the envelope with the cash in. I mean, she does pretty well out of it financially. So she gets money from Cameron and then also from from Dom. But yeah, it was, you know, she spends the night with, with Albie and then leaves leaves him. And then we see them at the end in Sicily walking off. I quite like the fact we see them at another hotel as well, greeting the staff. 
So it suggests that maybe this is not their first con and we've been kind of along for the ride the whole season, but this is not the first time she's played someone for an exorbitant amount of euros. Yeah, I I wasn't sure if the person that she hugged outside it was her supposed pimp. Yeah, it was. It was Alessio outside that hotel, which I loved. It was so great. That final shot of them walking. And and as, as they were walking down, I thought to myself... I remember the conversation they had where Mia said, I want to sing, and Lucia said, I want to open a shop. And I remember thinking to myself, well, that's not going to happen in the world of the White Lotus. It's not possible. Women don't get what they want. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that they did. Just to talk about Lucia for a a moment longer, do we think she had any feelings to Albie, or was it pure con? Or do we think there was... Because there was a moment, you know, when he says, I'm going to help you, and she goes, I don't want you to go... I thought the con was all happening in that point. But then when she rests her head on his chest, she had a kind of look on her face of, I, I don't think it was, yeah, I don't know. There was a little flash of something, maybe like a tiny bit of guilt or uncertainty or like worry that it wasn't going to work. I don't know. There was something more there, I felt. So if I had to pick a theme for this episode, it's ambiguity. And I feel like all of the storylines, obviously we'll come on to the others in a minute, you're left with a sense of ambiguity and there's a big unanswered question. And I do feel like Lucia and Albie, this is the unanswered question. It's, was it all calm? Was it all planned? Or were there any real feelings there? It's tricky, isn't it? My thinking is, now I've had a bit of time since the episode, is that she quite liked being drawn into the hypothetical of it all. And when she said, when he said, oh, I'll take you to LA, I think initially she thinks, oh, that's amazing. I'm going to live this amazing life in LA. And then I think she stops and thinks that she doesn't want to be beholden to anyone else. She wants to be the master or mistress of her own destiny. And actually, 55 odd thousand euros is enough to start your own destiny rather than being dragged out to L.A. to basically be, what was it, a broken bird that needs to be fixed. I thought the moment where she leaves Albie. And then he wakes up and sees that she's gone and, and realises that he, he was the mark, was wonderful, was really, really great, and, and feeds into that final moment with him and Portia, which we'll talk about later. Also, if we think about it, she probably slept with him enough times that he probably owes her about 50,000 euros, right? <laughs> I think it's so interesting in, in this season of The White Lotus how all the women really are sort of at the whim of how men want to behave. And I really love the fact that she flips that in the final episode. And especially as someone who is a, an escort and so very much is kind of at the whim of men, that she ends up the most empowered out of all of them, I think is great. I really, I really love that as a final twist. I enjoyed the fact that the final scene was Mia and Lucia walking off through that beautiful Sicilian street. I thought it was a really nice way to end the series. This is one of the first images we see, right, is the two of them walking through Tower Marina central I, I haven't been there so i don't know what it's like but it, it, yeah you're right it's nice it's kind of bookmarked that these two normal two normal girls from the town have, have have come away winners and that's such a flip of the script from season one i think where actually the kind of hawaiian locals were really like shortchanged by this whole tourism industry and all the kind of rich awful guests there's something quite satisfying about seeing a flip of that well let's move on then who should we talk about next Shall we go for the De Grasso's? Yeah. The first time we see them, we see Albie telling Lucia that he's going to help her and that 
scene that we just talked about, maybe you can come to LA. He tries to say something in Italian and then Lucia basically looks sad at the end of that. And then we cut to Dom also looking sad, looking at family pictures. And I just got the the sense of real genuine regret from Dom at the way that things had turned out. Yeah, I felt like he finally realised that it could be truly over. There'd been maybe a little bit of hope throughout this holiday that he could turn it around. And I think in this moment, he was basically facing up to the fact that it probably won't. We spoke a little bit about Christopher Moltisanti, the older version. And uh, I do feel like I would have loved to have seen him do a little bit more. I just felt like he was always just a, a little bit downtrodden and a little bit, I don't know. Yeah, I feel like he was a bit underused, which is a bit, is just an, one critique of a brilliant series, obviously. Do you think he's changed? I mean, I, I'd argue there's that brilliant shot in the airport where it, that beautiful girl walks past and it looks like all three DeGrasso men kind of leer at her a little bit. And you're like, none of you have learned anything. Not at all. This is just history going to repeat itself again and again. And hey, if if these sort of Italian women in the village that they go to visit, who have the attitude towards men or anything to go by, this is probably something DeGrasso men have been total shit for generations and generations. It's just in their nature, though, right? Their Achilles heel is their Achilles cock. <laughs> it's like a Greek curse. I think at the beginning, Albie's sort of setting himself up in opposition to Dom and Bert. And then when this girl walks past, you know, that you expect Bert and Dom to look as she goes by. And then Albie does as well. And it's kind of a little bit crushing. Well, I, I think that's because that conversation he has with Dom at the table where he's asking for the money and Dom says, you're so obviously a mark. You need to wise up. And he realised that he has been a mark. And the worry is that he then goes full incel almost from that. He decides that all women can't be trusted because he once had his heart broken by one woman. And I don't know if that's it, if that's what is his toxic behaviour. Because as we said before, right, the toxic trio, different generations of toxic masculinity going on there. Is that what sets Albie off down that path? Then maybe Dom is the one that's got the slightest bit of redemption. And I mean slight. And Albie is down the road with his dad and granddad. I mean, even before Albie gets conned, the fact he's already saying, look, if you give me this money, I'll talk to mum. You know, he's not as, he likes to think he's completely different from the rest of them, but he's he's there manipulating all of it and, you know, lying and kind of talking up another guy. That's still fairly toxic behaviour, even before he realises what's happened. So I don't think he's as different as he thinks he is. Yeah, there's some lovely dialogue in this scene between Dom and Albie. Dom says, I'm not an NGO. And he does quite fairly point out that Albie only met this girl three days ago. And then Albie tells him to think of it as a karmic payment. <laughs> but you're right, he says, I'll help you out with mum, yada yada. I, mean, I just love a good yada yada. <laughs> yeah, I think this is one of my favourite scenes in the final episode. It was so short, but it was so... Brilliantly written. I absolutely loved it. And we also find out that Albie doesn't have a job. He's idle rich. His dad's made loads of money because he says 50,000 is nothing to you. He goes, and he says, well, that's because you don't work. <laughs> it doesn't mean anything to you, that kind of money. So I think that's interesting. Do we think Albie's suddenly going to find himself a career when he gets back? Nah. <laughs> yeah, probably not. <laughs> 
Let's talk about Bert. We don't see much of Bert in this episode again. Uh, he had a dream that they went to visit their relatives who turned out to be banshees and chased them out of town. <laughs> um, but he's basically calling bullshit on the fact that they say that they're not talking about anything. And then later on, he gets a hug from Mia, who's saying thank you. I'm not really sure what Bert did to warrant the thanks or the hug. He said, I'm your I'm your number one fan in front of Valentina when she finished her first song. I'm assuming that's what that is, because they have a conversation and Val- she, Mia sees Valentina see that conversation. Yeah, and you know what I loved about this hug? It was a bit of a callback to Bert wanting to be hugged by a woman and to be told that, you know, you've done all right. You've done all right. Thank you. And I was like, oh, OK, well, it's all a bit grim, but I guess there's a kind of Bert's kind of got what he really wanted. And he sits down and he's like, not going to lie, I was a little bit aroused. I was like, Bert, no, <laughs> you ruined it again. <laughs> she could be my granddaughter, but when she hugged me, I got a little aroused. So F. Murray Abraham has been nominated for a Golden Globe for supporting actor in The White Lotus. I think he's the only male member of the cast to get that recognition. Do we think he was, A, the strongest in this? I mean, he's very funny and I enjoyed him, but... I mean, look, he's great. I've really enjoyed it, but I'm surprised he's the only one. I think there's been some standout performances this season. Tom Hollander, I think, is possibly the greatest for me. So it does surprise me a little bit. No offence to F. Murray Abraham. You were great if you're listening to this. Which he will be. I would like a Golden Globe for Sergei's Little Knitted Hat. I think that should be Best Supporting Actor. Oh, we have raved about F. Murray Abraham in, in previous episodes. I think he, he, he's just really, really brilliant. And Bert was a fantastic character for him. Dom makes his karmic payment. They learn at dinner. And uh, Albie says he's already put in a good word for him with his mum. Just a nice little moment between the two of them. Uh, and then Albie says that he wants to skip dinner to spend time with Lucia. And they tell each other they, they love each other. Yeah, very transactional. Uh, I love you there, uh, as he goes to spend time with an escort. The thing I think was most powerful about that is Albie then just kisses Bert's head, almost on the plaster, and moves on. And Bert is so taken by this moment. I guess because he doesn't get touched much, so to speak. So that's why the hug means so much. And then that lovely platonic kiss on his bald patch. And then finally for this group, we get Dom in bed calling his wife and she answers. But she says she can't talk now. Call me when you get back into town. Yeah, I wondered if that's a hint that maybe the wife's moved on or is thinking about moving on. And I don't know, maybe there's a little chance they'll get back together now, but he won't have changed. Again, I really, really like a lot of the ambiguity in this episode. And I I did think that just throws a little something in there where you just you just got a little bit of a sense that she might be with someone else. Maybe she got herself a little physical therapist on the side, a la Daphne. <laughs> maybe or maybe this is setting up for the White Lotus Series 3. If the if the biggest star from Series 1 goes into Series 2, then surely we can see a little bit more of Dom and the reunion tour, wherever that is, the White Lotus Transylvania, the White Lotus Marrakesh, wherever they end up going. And I can't remember if we've mentioned this on the podcast already, but that voice is Laura Dern on the end of the phone. It's been confirmed. So it would be quite weird if she wasn't in season three, but then maybe she just feels like she just wanted a little cheeky bit of voiceover work. Yeah, it's an easy gig, right? But she's not in the picture. When he looks at the picture of, I'm guessing, their daughter's wedding, 
is what I think that picture is of, right? And she's not in that. So maybe it'll be someone else who who happens to do a really good Laura Dern impersonation for the whole series. That is an amazing bit of trivia. I didn't know that. I'm a huge Laura Dern fan. But Laura Dern would be an amazing person to have in The White Lotus in any role. I quite like the idea of Albie going on holiday with his mum in the next season of white lotus and and the, her new fella but it definitely felt to me is he like she she had moved on and maybe met somebody else and she needed to have a conversation with him but it perhaps wasn't going to go the way that he wanted it to there's kind of a double sad thing there right so it's, it's sad if she's moved on for dom but i think what's also really sad is if she has started moving on and then she does end up taking him back and you get that scene in the airport they see the woman where you just get the sense of like absolutely nothing is going to change feeling all this regret at the moment but He's going to be up to his bad behaviour straight away. The whole Lucia thing, I think, did scar him a little bit and Albie's reaction to him. So we had those scenes, didn't we, of him looking at the girls in the bar and then him walking along the beach. And he could have acted upon those impulses throughout those last four or five episodes and didn't. But the signs obviously are there that he hasn't changed greatly. Well, I think the thing that stopped him every time was the fear of seeing a woman his own age. I mean, each time in those scenes, he perved away at women old enough to be his daughter. And the moment he saw someone his own age, he was like, no, God, they still exist at that age and ran off. Big Leo DiCaprio energy. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. So let's talk about our foursome, Dafcam and Ethan and Harper. The episode opens with a dark sea and a red sky. And then we see Ethan awake again, get the sense that he's not slept. And he's imagining Harper and Cam doing it whilst she's lying asleep in bed next to him. We see Daphne on FaceTime with the kids whilst Cam flosses his teeth, not the dance. But he doesn't want to talk to the kids. This is the thing that made me the least sympathetic towards Cameron was the fact that he he couldn't even be bothered to talk to his kids. Well, it was something going on, right? Because he was just staring deeply at himself, whether it is some kind of narcissism or not, as he was flossing his teeth. And I wondered what it was, because he didn't want to react, or at least he didn't react to being called the first couple of times, because I think he was too busy in his feelings for whatever reason they were. So was it that he'd kissed Harper and he felt bad about that? Or had it been mission success? Or or is he still upset that Daphne had left him that night? It's not quite clear if, if Harper rejected him. Or if it just sort of fizzled out. But I feel like if Cameron gets rejected by a woman, that could lead to some pretty aggressive flossing. Yeah, this is really interesting, isn't it? That's really ambiguous. Or also whether Ethan came and interrupted at that moment, whether it would have gone further. I also wonder that there was a hint, wasn't there, again, this ambiguity that those kids aren't his. So maybe he he knows that and is is therefore not quite so enthusiastic about the kids. Yeah, I wondered that. I felt like that was being heavily hinted at. An, an extra thing to throw in there, talking about that night that the, the ladies went away and Daphne talks about all Cameron's mates are basically psychopaths. And I wondered if maybe this is us seeing Cameron starting to become a complete psycho because that was some pretty intense staring at yourself whilst you floss action. Or, interesting question, if all your friends are psychopaths, and you think you're not, could it be that you're the psychopath who's <laughs> gradually turning everyone else? Oh, opposed to the group. And I think um, Ethan's behaviour in this episode maybe answers that question. Yeah. 
Well, let's move on then. So at breakfast, Daphne is telling this story about someone getting fired for throwing yogurt at an assistant's face. Uh, you can't throw a yogurt. Who cares? It's an assistant. Yeah, I love this gentle reminder to us all that these people are dicks. That's literally it. There's some lovely, lovely lines in this. You know, he's got two kids in private school, but, you know, his family can help him a little bit. And when did the world become run by nuns? You're not even supposed to succeed. This sounds like classic politics of envy that we might hear from our government. (laughs) But Harper cuts through all this uh, when she finally says aloud what she's been thinking all along. You're an idiot. And (laughs) I wrote boom in all caps, great. Oh, yes. Very much a boom moment. I loved this. I loved just, I just thought Harper is back and she's speaking her mind and I missed her so much. And I also felt like Daphne quite enjoyed it. There was a little smile from Daphne there that I just caught as well. I thought, shit, when she actually said it out loud, for the reason that Ethan then calls her on it later, I thought, ah, shit. She said that because something has happened and she's so annoyed at herself for doing whatever she's done that she can't help but show her displeasure at how much of a vile human being he is, that she cheated on Ethan to whatever level that she did with this scum. I think there's also a realisation that maybe they're sort of turning into Cameron and Daphne as well, which I think we definitely get by the end of the episode, but I wonder if it's the penny drop moment for her because they are behaving just like this couple that she... Has been making fun of the whole trip. Yeah, I thought their reactions were priceless, but yeah, Daphne's was definitely the best one. So then we get seen with Ethan and Harper, where he says, you must have fucked him because you called him an idiot. And his paranoia is magnified massively. And I, at this point, I totally believed her. I was, I was sure it was all in, in his head. But he pushes and it turns out he was right, except that it was just a kiss. Yeah, I think this was my favourite. Oh, God, I've got so many favourite scenes from this episode. But this one, this the performances between these two, it was just electric, wasn't it? Like the tension between them, you could really feel it. I mean, Harper was just completely backed into a corner. Ethan was not letting up. He was looking her dead in the eyes. Oh, man, I absolutely loved it. I knew something happened, Adam, because as I said before, Cameron doesn't read. <laughs> it's true, and you I, did say. <laughs> And I thought, that's my proof right there. Something's happened here. I felt a bit vindicated by that. Um, I mean, she says the real issue is you don't want to have sex with me. Ethan's pushing for more. He basically wants an excuse to fight, doesn't he? And then he strolls down to the beach after Daphne tells him where Cameron is and has this altercation with Cameron in the sea. They both at times have each other under the water. (laughs) And I'm sure we were all thinking one of them's going to kill the other. But a dude comes along and breaks it all up. Yeah, they heavily teased in the trailer that moment, which I think was a deliberate red herring. My favourite part of the scene, I mean, I think that how they shot the fight under the water was really, really good. And the water was so beautifully clear. My absolute favourite bit after, I guess it was kind of almost, oh, I can't remember what film it is. Is it, oh God, it's that really lame Christmas rom-com that everyone loves. Love Actually, is it, where they have that fight because Ethan stands up and his pink T-shirt has suddenly become like see-through and super tight and just really <laughs> badly formed to his body as he kind of stomps off knee-high in the water. I believe you're referring to Bridget Jones too, Damo. Sorry, sorry. To me, it's all the same. But I understand <laughs> that there are differences between them. One's not a Christmas film for a start. 
Yeah, this water fight, I was really reminded of the jet ski scene, you know, the kind of rutting stags and the kind of, it was just such a great throwback. Just to also mention all the eyes following Ethan as he marches to the beach was such a nice suspense builder, wasn't it? They were going to witness something. We were going to witness something now. Just so clever. And there's that line, I think Ethan says it, is this why you brought us out here so you could fuck my wife? And I wondered if actually... That was a thought that had maybe been in his mind before they came to the holiday, like it, this relationship with Cameron. It just felt to me like that was something that maybe in his subconscious he'd already considered happening. There's something weird about the friendship and it's definitely, there's definitely like a weird undercurrent to it that everyone's been aware of because Harper right at the start thought they'd probably been brought so that he could tap him up for money. And obviously it did kind of turn out that he was like, oh, trying to get him to do some insider trading stuff. So you're like, this guy is a user. It's not because they're particularly close friends. He wants something out of him. I think it's more about why Ethan agreed to go on the holiday. You know, he's he's new money, right? So he wanted to prove that he was just as good as Cameron. And, you know, all the stuff about the way that Cameron treated him when they were at, at college together. So I think it's always been building to this point where he wanted to stand up to Cameron and say, I'm just as good as you. And that comes out in this fight. Post-fight, Ethan's walking along the beach and, and Daphne calls to him and asks him if he's all right. He tells her he thinks something happened between Cameron and Harper. And this, I think this was my favourite piece of acting in the episode because I think Megan Faye in this was just superb. So, so good, her reaction to all of that. Before she spoke, before she said anything else, was just wonderful. Yeah, it's like that half second of her in her eyes And then she stops looking at him, she looks off to the side, has a breath and then comes back with this repress, repress, ignore, repress system that she has and trying to tell him that it's going to be all right as long as he follows her system of dealing with the horrendous heartache that follows. That scene is incredible. And I'm shocked she's not got a Golden Globe nomination, actually, because I love Aubrey Plaza. I've absolutely loved watching her, but... Daphne, for me, has been one of the best written characters. She's so surface level on first watch. And then the stuff that's going on under that and the way that's played, it's just like, oh, it's just so good. Yeah, she says, you spend every second with somebody and there's a part that's still a mystery. You don't need to know everything to love someone. It's like, oof, brilliantly written, brilliantly delivered. Just one of Daphne's little pep talks. And also, I'm a mystery to myself. I surprise myself all the time. Do whatever you have to do not to feel like a victim of life really really great stuff and then she suggests that they go to the pretty death island and she says walk with me and then this real again lovely lovely sequence but she leads and he follows and then she turns and she's giving him the eyes and he stops for a moment realizes what's happening and then decides to walk on again love the ambiguity and that being a massive theme in this episode and every storyline having a big sort of ambiguous question mark at a point where it's completely up to you to draw your own conclusions. Yeah, I was wondering if she was almost like a siren calling him to the rocks. Is this is Ethan going to be one of the bodies? Because Ethan knows this thing has happened. He's brought it to her. He said it out loud that Cameron has cheated on her. She knows that he knows that she knows that they know that we know that they know. And this is how she deals with that. If Ethan isn't around... They don't have to spend time together. She doesn't have to think about Cameron's infidelities. Or yeah, or are they going to go and bang on the island of death? There was a total moment where I thought he was, um, yeah, Daphne was going to bump him off. And I was like, that would be a great twist, to be fair, especially with her being 
shocked finding the body it would be a great twist if she wasn't really that shocked but I think I do think it's so that ambiguity deliberately like are they gonna have sex is she gonna kill him is nothing gonna happen has everyone just been reading way too much into tiny little things <laughs> behavior this entire trip oh well, I thought they were definitely gonna bang <laughs> I'm 100% convinced they banged and I also think in some ways that is a death of sorts because he's decided he's going to commit to this really weird fucked up way of viewing relationships that is working for Cameron and Daphne he's very much like you know they've been adamant they're going to be different to that he doesn't get involved with Lucia and Mia when they have the kind of party episode with the girls are in NATO and it, it feels like him going yeah you know what I'm going down this path now I'm making this choice it's the end of one era and the start of something else. Yeah, I think so, because the next scene we have with them, right, is is we see Daphne and Cameron coming down to dinner, and obviously Cameron pays Lucia the money, and then we cut to Ethan and Harper at the table looking, and you think they definitely have become the other two now. They are fully, fully corrupted. Well, they're sitting at a different table. They're not sitting at the normal table that Daphne and Cameron and they share. So when they sit down, they're like, oh, you're over there. Okay, we'll we'll join you over there. And Harper's crying. I think Ethan has told her what happened with Daphne. And so that's why she's she's crying and that they're sitting at a different table. But then Daphne and Cameron just act like nothing has happened at all. And, you know, they don't mention the fight. They don't mention the fuck. Cameron's toasting the trip. <laughs> I just loved Cameron sitting down with a black eye being like, what's up, guys? <laughs> so good. It was at this point it became like I, I, we all we all knew it, but it was something about this scene and like Izzy, you said the disassociation that made me just think these two are total psychos. And what's the next thing to do? Book the next trip. Where are we going next year? The Maldives, am I right? Oh God, I know more scuba, less pasta. It's like stay <laughs> away. <laughs> do we think we're going to the Maldives? Do you think that was a teaser for season three? No, I've heard it's Japan. Strong rumours from various people who've seen filming going on. And I think Mike White has even hinted at it in an interview. But yeah, I've heard Japan, which would be great. Be very, very excited about that. Is the White Lotus big in Japan? Who knows? Guess we'll find out. I mean, it's the perfect opportunity for someone to commit seppuku or Harry Carey, right? At the end, someone will be seriously dishonoured, no doubt. Also, who doesn't want to see Bert in some cherry blossom? So we end this sequence then with Ethan and Harper getting it on and they smash the head statue as they are in the throes of passion and their eyes of that end up facing the floor. I quite like that head smashed as we then saw in soft but focus in the background as Harper got some head. (laughs) And of course the volcano erupts. Of course, of course it does. A great metaphor. Uh, we we have one small scene with them left, of course, at the airport, where they're sat. What Cameron's kind of looking in the middle distance, Daphne's got her arm around him and then pulls his face to look at her to stop him looking off into the middle distance. And they kiss, and then we see the other side of the banker seats is Harper and Ethan, and Ethan has his arm around Harper, and they seem to have been fully reconnected after their life. Night of passion, even if there is a unease there as well. They both committed to this horrible new way of living. That's what's happened. And they've sealed it with a night of passion. But yeah, I just kind of almost want a scene on the plane where Daphne turns around and is like, great, I've booked our next trip, guys. 
would you like to see them again in season three? Are these the returning characters that you'd most like to see? Or do we feel like we're done with them now? I mean, again, it doesn't feel like a huge amount has changed. Other Ethan and Harper maybe have like rekindled something that was lost, but certainly doesn't seem like much has changed for Daphne and Cameron. So I have actually heard a rumour about who might be coming back in season three. So there will be a returning character. Could be wrong. But Dumois, the Instagram account that I follow religiously for celebrity gossip, thinks Connie Britton from season one is coming back for season three. She was so good in season one. Who was she? She was the mum. Sydney Sweeney's mum. I think for me, as great as everyone's been, this was my least favourite storyline of the four. I think the performances were brilliant, but I have to say it was my least favourite of them. Okay, well, let's move on to the big section of this episode, and that is the Tanya and Portia section. I mean, the first thing that I was delighted about was the fact that Tanya was alive at the start of it. <laughs> she took a lot of cocaine. Yeah, absolutely. And seemed remarkably fresh. Yeah, there wasn't much of a come down for her, was there? <laughs> in fact, she seemed almost sharper in, in a way. <laughs> I also just loved that as she emerged from the bedroom, here she is. From Quentin. <laughs> I guess they're expecting her to be a lot more delicate, right? As she had been the day before. I reckon it's probably because she's done so much coke, it's still in the system. It feels like what goes on on the boat is the crash as that coke energy leaves her. Very much so. And I just want to give a shout out to um, her line Oh, I wish I could grab you all and fold you up in my trunk. I was like, Oh, because I was thinking about Adam, you mentioning spotting that second trunk coming into the palazzo a few a few episodes ago but yeah i thought that was a really nice little prophetic line that came out there we got confirmation that that was tanya's trunk and not quentin's previous kill i don't know if anyone uh saw there was a bit of a costume clue the dress that tanya is wearing is the dress that the wife who ends up getting accidentally bumped off in the godfather wears or is very similar so yeah as soon as oh. i saw her dress i was like oh no they're teasing something did you recognise that, Adam? I know you're a fan of the Godfather films. <laughs> yeah, I definitely picked up on that, you know, as I've studied those films so, so heavily. I... But yeah, Tanya can hear this heated, whispered argument at the breakfast table. So it seems like they're not all aligned with the plan. And then uh, later on we get, is it Marco, who comes along to say goodbye. And he's he's very, very upset. She says he's really crying and uh, Quentin says Italians tend to get overwrought. Just a bit of casual British xenophobia there. Some of the truest writing that there is in The White Lotus. Yeah, I, I took it that because Didier is obviously from money, but has no money, right? So Didier is all in because he doesn't give a fuck about this American and wants money for his estate. And that, that's what I, I took, that the lads that were left, the gays that are trying to kill her, uh, need money for their kind of their ancestral homes all of them Didier does make a, a little slip and that he says uh, it's a wonderful thing to make a new friend so late in life and, and she questions that and he's, it's just a French saying <laughs> it's just it got so ridiculous it's like you know when you watch those horror films or whatever and someone ends up in a house and they're all carnivores and they're like oh we're looking forward to having you for dinner it's like, it's so obvious they're trying to kill you. <laughs> and bless Tanya, she's so oblivious. I love it. 
But she asks where Portia is, right? The trouble with assistants, they start bossing me around, they steal your medications, and then they disappear. I mean, literally everybody I've worked with at the space. Tanya, I feel your pain. (laughs) Too right, too right. (laughs) But speaking of Portia, she wakes up and she can't find her phone, which she'd been charging overnight. And she needs to call Tanya. Uh, Jack says it's fine. He texted his uncle, although when he did that between sort of passing out and then waking up uh, the next morning, I don't know. He's just trying to brush it off. And she says she definitely had it because she tried to Insta stalk him. um, But he's not on Insta. Yeah, which is interesting because we have that thing that she says, whatever it is in episode two or three about Instagram and the socials and that, you know, at the beginning of the series, that's exactly what she wanted. She was sick of the discourse. She wanted someone who wasn't interested in social media. And and here she is. She got a wish and (laughs) she isn't enjoying it, is she? It did suddenly hit me at this point why Greg was so upset that Tanya had brought her assistant along in episode one. Because she was going to be, you know, another pair of eyes. She was an added complication, essentially. So it kind of just had a little flashback to that moment. And it kind of made a lot more sense for me. And then just the eyes, the look, the eyes of both of them. She's so anxious when she gets back into the bed and he's just looking at the back of her head in this really dark, sinister way. Maybe I, I imagine this, but she kind of tries to roll away from him further. I thought, to turn her back to him more. And he's got that arm over her, kind of half over her neck, half over her shoulders. And he pulls her closer and in doing so, flattens her so she can't turn away from him even more. Which I thought was which was really harrowing for me. I felt so tense during all the Porsche and Jack scenes this episode. I thought they were so well done. I would say even more so in a way than the stuff on the yacht. There was just something so sinister. We were like, I was like, I don't think she's getting out of this alive. I genuinely thought she was going to be another casualty. Yeah, I was really, really worried about Portia throughout this episode. And I think, yeah, with the yacht, you always get a a bit of Jennifer Coolidge-like relief, don't you? A slight moment of comedy from her expert performance. But in the Jack and Portia scenes, they really just kept, the tension just kept rising and rising and rising. They just did not let up. When he was like, I think, why don't you, leave? I'm sure you left it in the bar. I was like, oh, lovely, cheeky little bit of gaslighting there. Oof. Haven't had it for a little while. Yeah, I mean, if there's one thing the White Lotus has taught me as a series, it's that if I'm going to go on holiday anywhere where I don't speak the language, I just need to know the words, help, this man is trying to kill me. <laughs> I think a lot of characters probably would have um, come off a bit better. Have they just just taken the time to learn that very basic Italian? I mean, the other thing that added to the tension to me was the bells tolling again. And then the very next character we see is Portia, who's still confused about her phone. He says he, he thinks she'll see it again. And he can't, she can't call Tanya now anyway, because she's on the boat. But the idea is that he's going to drive her back, show her the island. Uh, he throws the satisfied line back at her again, which I thought was a nice callback. But first he needs to shit, get her a drink, and then she can tranquilo. <laughs> Admit it, he's smooth as fuck. Because every time I've done that line, I mean, ladies have just fallen into my lap every time I I, I give that list. <laughs> we then get this lovely scene. Well, I think Tanya's on the boat at this point, but they're talking about the old buildings. And Tanya says, there aren't enough people who are worried about old buildings. And again, I was like, Tanya, it's like we're, the, we're one person. Just... <laughs> I don't know. 
Just a, a, a tiny step backwards. I think we missed the scene where Tanyev looks at the picture again of uh, Greg and uh, Quentin sees that she's seen it. And I was like, oh, shit, shit, this is bad. And then Quentin just comes out with the most, I mean, it might not be a lie, to be fair, but he says we used to go fly fishing and drop acid together. And I just love like the detail of Quentin's lying and the quickness of it is so good. And then Tanya, oh, Tanya, the resemblance is uncanny. Oh, look alive, Tanya. She's like, but this guy has hair. You're like, <laughs> yeah, that is a fact. But I don't know. I mean, we've had this we've had this conversation before. How present is Tanya? Does she hide it like a stalking horse? Is it she's like, I don't know what the fuck to do. Maybe if I carry on playing the idiot, I'm going to be safe. I don't, I don't know at what point she's playing the idiot and actually is an idiot. I think she is actually an idiot a good portion of the time and if she'd worked it out at that point we would have been robbed of this wonderful wonderful scene that she has on the phone with Portia where she does work it all out I think I do wonder if there's an element of her she's sort of almost like willfully stupid and she's quite a tragic character in that she she just really doesn't want to believe some things are true she knows Greg is like not a good husband there's like strong indicators that he's having an affair it's obviously like quite a shit unhappy marriage and I just wonder if it's 50% genuine stupidity and 50% I'm just gonna choose to not believe this and turn my brain off and that's quite tragic in itself I wonder if there's also 20% of she's quite medicated and I think we can sometimes forget that but we have seen her medications and I wonder if that makes her slightly foggy brained when it comes to working out someone's trying to kill her (laughs) <laughs> she's also on a huge come down at this point let's not let's not forget that yeah definitely by the time she's on the boat i wonder also if we're seeing this behavioral pattern that daphne has 20 30 years down the line so what happens when you repress self-medicate buy things to to, to hide the hole inside what that does now you've said that damien i wonder if it's like tanya Daphne and Portia are almost like women at different points in their lives and what they could potentially go on to be if they make the same choices. There seems to be a little mirroring there between those three women at different stages in their lives. I want to get onto this phone call. So Portia manages to get Jack's phone and call Tanya. I mean, kudos for remembering her number. Tanya reveals that he was kind of fucking his uncle. (laughs) And Portia tells her she has a very bad feeling about all of this. And this is just, again, superb acting from Jennifer Coolidge as she pieces it all together and works out what's going on. Really, really great stuff. She works out the the prenup and that she's in danger. I mean, it's fantastic acting that you can just see the pennies dropping. (laughs) It's so good. But guys, it couldn't be Greg because he doesn't know any gay guys in Sicily. (laughs) It's... What was it? She manages, it's just the pennies drop so slowly. Not only do we see them, we see them stop, drop, hover, (laughs) maybe go up a little bit and then eventually fall. And you can almost hear them. (laughs) Jack's not going to let her get back quickly. She goes back to the table and Quentin asks whether Hades has carried Portia off to the underworld. But why don't you enjoy the Ionian Sea while you still can? Again, such a 
looking forward to having you for dinner line get a clue Tanya oh I tell you my anxiety levels were on the rise at this point I was wondering especially after so many moments but particularly is that the Queen of Sicily in the Opera House whether Quentin and Didier and the bald guy whether these comments were just them like being bitches basically so they could then laugh about it later and do you remember when you were that obvious with her and she still didn't get it yeah and we hear greg talking on the phone don't don't we in those conversations that tanya overhears and she says something like no she's totally oblivious so yeah definitely she's an easy mark but they drop anchor near the hotel she wants to get off but he suggests they have dinner on the yacht and and drops the fact that nicolo her lover is coming in a dinghy to escort her back for one last rendezvous and then cut back to Portia and Jack uh, and she confronts him cut the shit you stole my phone you're lying to me have I been kidnapped sorry if you think that the dude that you are with is dodgy has stolen your phone and has trapped you at another part of an island knowing that you can't get anywhere why would you then get into the car with him and then once you're in the car at that point confront him where he just goes all right Fine, I'll kill you then because you're now too much trouble. Yeah, bad, bad decision making from Portia there. Was increasingly stressed by it all. I was like, Portia, you're in a town. Run into a shop, find someone that speaks English. Call the police. But no. I think the other thing is when she did finally confront him about fucking his uncle, all I could think about was that song from South Park, the movie, the Terence and Phillips song, Uncle Fucker. <laughs> There's a nice contrast between him and Quentin, right? In that Quentin's always able to sort of talk his way around it. And when he gets confronted, he just has to shout, Oi, leave it alone, let me do my job. He's given it all away, but what can she do? I mean, he, he just doesn't have the intellect, right? He doesn't have the... Well, maybe intellect's not fair. He's certainly not uh, quick-minded enough to kind of properly assuage any issues. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It was It was tricky because I constantly felt like, is he going to relent? and let her go, or is he going to just take her off somewhere and do it himself? Probably crying whilst he does it. At that point, I was like, I think he is going to kill her. There is a, I mean, there is a sense we don't know what exactly he owes to Quentin and like what the situation is that he's got himself into. You know, there's something really awful going on in that dynamic, but exactly how deep he is into a situation, what has happened to kind of embroil him in this, we're not really sure. Not to leapfrog a scene, but he does take her to the airport he is essentially giving her an out, isn't he, really? He's being like, don't go back there. Trust me, these people are powerful. Don't be stupid. And I wonder if he's, he does seem like a bit of a lost boy, Jack, I'd say. I don't think he's a truly, really bad person. I just think he's super lost his way. Yeah, he's, he's someone that kind of gives in to his desires in the moment, right? And it's just, a well, as he says, you know, tomorrow isn't given. So let's let's just enjoy now. This is always enjoying this moment, this moment and this moment rather than looking forward. The other thing that's kind of only really thinking about now, having had a couple of hours after watching, is that moment in which he lets her go and he says, these are dangerous people. He's kind of resigning himself to the fact that he could get fucked up now because he hasn't done what he's supposed to do. And obviously, in the end, he's fine because, spoiler alert, but in that moment, he does something selfless there. Yeah, although is he going to be fine? So we don't know really like how big this scheme is and whether it goes beyond these people. And essentially quite a key witness to what's happened has now gotten away. 
there's quite a lot of hints of people have been chatting online about whether the mafia are somehow involved in it and whether this scheme is bigger than it just being Quentin and Greg and whether it's a small part of a much bigger mess that we don't get to see all of. So let's get back to Tanya then. So she tries to sneak off to use her phone, manages to drop that in the sea. <laughs> and she needs to sneak back up in order to get to talk to the knitted hat skipper who doesn't speak any English. Please, can we talk about that comedy run to the other side of the boat where oh. she subtly walks off for a few steps and then legs it and then does the same on the way back? It's like absolute physical comedy in one of the like scariest moments of the show that I laughed out loud. God bless Jennifer Coolidge. She deserves that Golden Globe for that alone. Well, she doesn't get too far with, with Sergei of the Knitted Hat, other than finding out that he's also gay. But it does give her a good vantage point to spot Niccolo arriving with his cocaine bag. And then back at dinner, she hasn't touched her lasagna. Niccolo gets up to get something from his bag. Quentin says, I wanted you to have the most magical time in Sicily. It's the least I could do. But now it's time for you to go back to the hotel. And she's like, what about Didier and what's his face? <laughs> no, I love that she didn't learn all their names. That was such a brilliant detail of character that was just perfect it was hugo hugo <laughs> but it was a nice reminder that they were also hotel guests right they met at the hotel so that's where didier and hugo were staying so i thought that was quite a nice little touch yeah because i had sort of forgotten that they were staying at the hotel to be honest because they've spent so much time off the hotel premises i thought that was really clever that they sort of just made us forget that i thought it was absolutely brilliant then we get to the climax of the whole thing, where Tanya goes off to the powder room, grabbing Niccolo's bag on the way. She finds the gun. And then we, we see all of this from, from Tanya's perspective. They're kind of knocking on the door and asking if she's all right. And then, yeah, she lets rip. What? What a scene. Just to quickly jump back, what I really liked about that before she runs off is Quentin suddenly becomes quite sharp and short with her. He's not enjoying this anymore. She needs to fuck off and die, literally, because she's outstayed her welcome, which I really liked. I was seeing that, the mask slipping from Quentin. Yeah, and then uh, her grabbing that black bag. She's just not stealth, is she, Tanya? <laughs> what did you think of that? So, you know, she's firing off this gun. My laptop froze when I was watching this, so I could hear the footsteps and the gunshots, but I had a frozen picture. I had to stop it and start it again. She's not even looking as she shoots. She's not even looking. She's just walking forwards, crying and firing this gun. It's just like <laughs> comedy panic, isn't it? I'll be honest, real shock ending for me because I knew something explosive was going to happen, but I, I didn't have Jennifer Coolidge going on a murderous rampage on a yacht. It wasn't actually on my list of anything I was suspecting at all. It was on my list. Yeah, Grace, you predicted Tanya as the killer and she, she killed three of them. I backed my Chaotic Queen the whole way. I knew she'd do it. I didn't then expect the slight twist at the end. That amazing scene where she kind of opens her eyes. We see the mafiosi is dead on the... Mafioso, sorry, is dead on the floor. And we cut to Didier is splayed out. And Quentin is kind of half hanging on the side of the sofa. We can see he's been shot. He turns around and looks at her. And she says, tell me, tell me, is Greg cheating on me? Not the question. Oh, I just loved that. It's one of my favourite lines because it's so funny, but so tragic that that is the thing that she's thinking about at this point. And it just, it's just like the epitome of Tanya's character, isn't it? 100%. 
Also, I feel like when Quentin turned around and looked at her and then died, I felt like what passed over his eyes was, I have died for this woman. <laughs> well, the most tragic thing, Tanya's final words, she sees the dinghy and she's trying to work out how she's going to get down there. I mean, there must have been a ladder somewhere, but she says, you got this to herself before she plummets off. And then that's it. No more Tanya. In her little glittery heels. Yeah, and then we had that shot of her sinking deep into the Ionian Sea, and we have, is it Aeneas? I can't remember the exact opera that's that's playing, and we see her kind of finally at peace as she sinks, or as it looks like she's sinking to the bottom of the sea. I think it was Madame Butterfly. I could be wrong. Yeah, I think it is Madame Butterfly to tie in with the opera they go and see. I was reading like a little interview with Mike White earlier where he said that he really wanted her to have this almost like glorious finale where she like shoots her way out and then dies in such like derpy Tanya way, which is like she just doesn't take her high heels off before trying to jump onto a dinghy. It's just perfect. There's no way she'd get into the water and swim a little bit round and get in. She has to stay dry, right? That's more important. And and I'm glad you mentioned that, Damien, because I do believe the coast was swimmable. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's just, you know, she's such a, she's so clumsy. You know, I thought it was just, it was the perfect ending. And it was sort of operatic in a way. Her final moments, I thought, were epic. And she died an operatic heroine. Although I am furious that Greg is now going to get her money. And he doesn't even have to split it with the gays. He just gets it all. Well, maybe Portia and Albie are going to team up and uh, take Greg down somehow let's cover the ending of this then so we've already mentioned lucia leaving albie we get the scene where daphne swims off and we see her finding the hairy legs of tanya apparently <laughs> um, and then we cut to the airport well we get the, the bodies being dragged up from the from the beach then we go to the airport which talks about the degrassos and daphne and cameron and ethan harper i love that portia was trying to disguise herself and found some tanya like shades to put on but that was a nice little tribute and then we get this scene between portia and albie where he reveals that someone drowned and a bunch of dead bodies were found on a yacht and they kind of swap holiday war stories and then swap numbers yeah i wonder if initially when she said oh there you are are you with your dad and your granddad i thought she was thinking like right brilliant that's people these are people that i can physically be with i'm not gonna leave any of their sides until I get on this plane. And then the next bit, which I thought was really gutting, is was it episode three or episode four, literally just before they meet Quentin and his pals. But Tanya says, don't chase emotionally unavailable men. And then she asks Albie for his number and they switch numbers. And you think the cycle continues. Sure does. I thought that was kind of a positive ending to their stories and that they'd both been looking for something else on their holidays and then found out that actually what they what they really wanted was there in front of them the whole time well yeah but I guess if someone goes oh how did it go for you oh he's deranged how did it go for you she played me can I get your number (laughs) it's just a bit weird it's a bit weird yeah I think it's a bit of both isn't it I think it is it's a sort of happy ending but knowing what these two people are like, it's not really going to be happy. Yeah, I mean, it's unlikely to go the distance, is it, once they touch down in the States? They'll probably hang out a couple of times and then it'll probably go nowhere. Cool. Well, that's that's the White Lotus then. Any final thoughts, hopes? Bring on Japan. Big time. 
Yeah, it's been a really enjoyable season. I've thoroughly enjoyed pulling it to pieces with you all. Thank you, Izzy, for joining us up for the finale. Oh, thank um, you for having me. Very, very welcome. And you're going to join us again for our 2022 review of the year and preview of what's coming up in 2023. Damien and Grace, I've asked for your top five of the year in advance. So if you can get those to me at some point, that'd be great. And you can let us know before we get there what your top five shows of the year have been via the social media. You can find us at TVDNAPod on the usual platforms, or you can email them to TVDNAPod at gmail.com. Yeah, unlike Jack, we actually do have Instagram. I was going to say, if people like Jack don't have Instagram, is there a way to get in touch? We covered that. <laughs> awesome. Anyone got uh, White Lotus line of the season to see us out? I mean, for me, it's got to be these gays that try to kill me. <laughs> I don't have a quote. All I can say is for the joy that this second series has given us all. Grazie mille. Ciao. Let's fun. Let's fun. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the US version of Ghost. So I was going to say, who by? Is it by Americans? Because <laughs> we no. can cut all of that. That's good because you've ruined my segue. But uh, I'm just trying to, I'm stalling now while I find it. I'm also looking up on the Guardian website. Da, 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 da. Winners and nominees, let's go there. Right, I think, I think Nina's gone to sleep. <laughs>